Make sure you buy it for the right price point and make sure you have enough CapEx put aside that you can handle it. So we're talking about, you know, vintage, the year you said. Uh, you were talking about amenities. We're talking about unit mix. We're talking about median income. Figure out what your buy rate criteria is for you right now. And it's going to evolve because if you're a beginning investor, as a beginning investor, you're going to buy anything, anything that makes sense. And that's where people get into trouble because they look at these 60s assets and people have already re reflipped them and you know, repositioned them. You're already buying at the high point. Pricing's going to come down right now. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Gino Barbaro. And today we're digging into some of the biggest blind spots in multifamily that newer investors have and some of the gurus out there really have. They're not talking about quite as much as Gino and his business partner, Jake are talking about and teaching their students about. We're digging into a couple of those holes, mistakes that people are making when they're newer in the real estate investing space. When it comes to maybe after you've acquired an asset, what do you do? Well, there aren't that many people talking about that, except for Gino, we're digging into that today. We're also talking about building your criteria to find multifamily deals and so much more. It's great to reconnect with Gino. He's been on the show in the past. Happy to have him back on and sharing these lessons with you today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Boat. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on commercial, multifamily, and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcasts user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. For those of you who are just listening on audio, just so you know, we do put the videos on YouTube. So check out our YouTube channel if you'd like to see the videos and get even more engaged with the action. Once again, our guest today is Gino Barbaro from Jake and Gino. Without any further ado, here we go. Gino, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for coming back on the show. For our listeners out there who don't know, about you and your background. Can you tell us about what you do and what you invest in? Good morning, Taylor. Thanks for having me on. I am a multifamily investor. I we started out years and years ago myself investing in mobile home parks. And so that that just wasn't for me. I didn't want to deal with the mobile home park, you know, the that whole space. I didn't want to deal with the resident base. I didn't want to deal with old properties that had CapEx issues. Now, maybe I should have because cap rates when I started years ago were 15 and 17 and 18. <laughs> But you know, I didn't. I ended up choosing multifamily, and Jake and I met in 2009. We started investing in 2011, and it took us 18 months to get that first deal in 2013. And I guess our strategy, I don't want to say it's unique, but it's a little different. Back then, there was not much syndication going on. Well, as far as the smaller investor, the Taylors and the Genos of the world, we just go out, we buy properties, we refi them, we buy the next one. And it took a little bit longer. But we are what we call vertically integrated. So we were managing our own properties. So we couldn't grow as quickly as your typical syndicator who's using third-party property management. And we're okay with that. We like the strategy. Been able to refi over $20 million from the portfolio. And you know, right now we're standing around 1,500 units, which is owned just by me, Jake, and a partner. And one of those deals is syndicated, but the remainder of those is, is our, our, our own deal. So we've been able to grow and you know, just talking to you off 
off camera, read tons of books. You know, Steve Robinson's Chick-fil-A book, Cobra Cows, amazing marketing book, but I love the idea of Chick-fil-A not, not outgrowing their infrastructure. Growing smartly. I mean, like you can buy thousands of units and then all of a sudden, how do I manage these things? You get overwhelmed. We've been very intentional the last few years. We haven't bought a ton of deals every year. We bought maybe 200 units on average per year for the last two to three years. We thought the market was at a high. I read the book, Small Giants by Bob Erlingham, another amazing book. We don't need to be the Facebook of multifamily or the Uber of multifamily. We'd like to have that small giant where top line revenues were only 20% a year. I mean, right now that, that's pretty awesome for us between revenue, between revenue growth on, on the income side and adding deals, if we can do that for the next few years, we'll be more than happy with that, Dylan. Awesome. That's great. And and I would agree that vertical integration has huge advantages, especially in multifamily. I've seen a lot of folks, uh, and I've been in situations myself, where we struggled with managing third-party property managers because whether they don't really care or interests aren't really truly aligned or you know, maybe a f- person who's heading up the prop, the asset management, managing the property manager, doesn't quite know what they're doing. Yeah, you guys have a, a lot of students in your uh, coaching program. Are you you know, pushing folks toward their own vertical integration or how are you encouraging your students to kind of handle that question? The job of property management is very difficult. Yes. If you suck at it, you're getting fired. And if you're a rock star property management company, guess what? The company is going to, the, the property the investors are going to Get, take the property and sell it and you're going to get fired anyway, right? right. So th- there's a fine line there. <clears throat> and it, it doesn't generate as much revenue as people think. It generates revenue, but making profits, it's all about scale. It, it's a difficult thing. For our students, our core is buy right, manage right, and finance right. That's our three pillars. And you can apply that to, I think, any investing niche. But that manage right is where very few educators teach. And our students have closed over 50,000 years right now. And you know when it first started out, it's over $4 billion. It's growing every year. When you first when we first started out, we just wanted we thought everyone should should property manage, but it's not realistic. But what our, what I've seen our students do, there's a couple of different paths. I, I would love everyone who first starts out, if you've got a 10 or 12 or 15 year property, Jake and I, we managed our own properties in the very beginning because we wanted to learn. We wanted to get that experience. We wanted to see how to deal with the residents. We wanted to look at the lease. We wanted to get a moving fee. We wanted whatever it was, we wanted to get that experience. And then hand it off. To a property manager company, you know, you need that scale. So, you know, you have 20 units, maybe from 20 to two to 300 units, use that third party property management. And then maybe at that 300 unit or the 400 unit or whatever, the 500 unit, bring it back in house if you've had that many units within a market. And a lot of our students, especially our coaches, are doing that. They buy their first couple of properties. Some of them even go straight to third party, which is great, but at least learn how to manage the manager. At least learn, understand the biggest mistake that I think Jake and I made early on. There was a lot of them, but one of the big ones was one of this. We'll go down that Just rabbit hole, but <laughs> dude, it's like anyway, you're you're an asset manager company and you're a property manager. When you're buying your own deals, they sort of get merged and, and blended in. And Jake is the property manager here. We own the assets. We should be an asset management company as well. He's managing the properties. The asset management company is a different function. They sort of butt heads. And when you're property managing your own deals or for somebody else, well, guess what? The property manager gets paid every month, no matter what. The asset manager doesn't always get paid. And he's the last, the investors are the last ones to get paid. So you see the conflict there. So they need to work really well together. And the asset management company 
needs to have weekly calls to the property management company. They need to really be, you know, have those expectations set out in the beginning. And, you know, we can all blame property management companies, but they can be like children. If you don't tell them what to do, they're going to do it their own way. They're, they're not going to follow your lead. Weekly calls. Yeah. All they need is 15 minutes of your time. Fill out this weekly pulse. What's the income for the week? What are the expenses? How many move-ins do we have? How many evictions do we have? How many vacant are rented? Vacant rented. What are the delinquencies? Let's track them weekly. And then at the end of the week, we get on the call. Why are delinquencies just higher? Let's send out a text to the, to the residents. Let's do whatever we need to do and start collecting that money. And I think we can all go out and blame property management companies, but I always equate it to like an electric company. When the electricity is on, great. No one's complaining. But when you lose the power, all of a sudden, property management's the same way. You can have a resident that has 29 and a half great days. The AC breaks down Sunday at four o'clock in the afternoon and it's 92 degrees outside. All hell breaks loose. It's a very challenging job to do. But I, as I said, I think if you want to start out in property management, start out those couple of deals. But then, it, you know, Taylor, another thing, what is your goal? Is your goal just to have a small portfolio of 70, 80, 100 units managing them yourself? Great. But if you want to scale and you're by yourself, especially, maybe that third party helps you to a point when you have enough scale where you can bring it back in house. I mean, 500 units, you're going to probably need on average five to six property managers, probably about, I would say, seven or eight maintenance techs. So that's when you have some scale there and you can bring it back in house and start hiring. But remember, you're building the business. Property management is separate from asset management and you really need to look at that company as a separate entity. The great thing about it is with us, we focus on something called profit per unit. We love profit per unit on each door because we can actually maximize that number with you know with having that vertical integration. And on average, we've been hitting between 250 and 300 a month per door on our portfolio. Whereas an average person syndicating a deal, they may get 100, may get a little less, touch more because there's a lot more fees involved. They're not driving revenue as much as we are. Their expenses may be a little bit more which is fine, but they have the scale. They've got more units, but they're getting making less less profit per unit. So, you know, it's it's really a way, I would say whatever goals you're looking to achieve is works best for you. Is that profit per unit metric just based on cash flow or are you also looking at cash disposition flow. value? And so it's just cash flow. No, just profit per door, exactly. What's left over, what the owner draws are. What we basically do is we have a baseline in every checking account. Baseline's there. Let's say your baseline for a property is $10,000. Let's say it's mortgage, mortgage, tax, insurance, 10000 bucks. We want to have a baseline of whatever the mortgage, taxes, and insurance are, add 30% to that. So let's say it's 10000 add another 30% to that. 13000 13000 bucks, right? Yes. If at the end of the month, because we don't, we don't, we like full base accounting, but at full base accounting, it's not cash money. It's not, you're not living in the real world. At the end of the month, if your check and count is seventeen thousand and your baseline is thirteen, you draw the four thousand dollars. That four thousand dollars comes out as profit divided by the number of units, and that's what your profit per unit is. And what it also tells us is what part of your portfolio is doing really well. Is it those two bedroom townhomes that is profiting really well? Are they the one bedrooms? Are they the four beds? Right, the four beds may be cranking. So if that's the case, let's focus on buying more of that type of asset. So that's one of the ways we use the metric, but it's also another way to show. As the asset manager, this is what we're doing. This is the profitability of the business. So we love to use that number. And I know most people don't talk about it or focus on it, but it's cash money. That you know, you can look at accrual. Great, we're accruing it. Did you collect it though? And is it in the bank? Those are two different questions, Taylor. <laughs> so I really appreciate the way uh you you mentioned that a lot of folks that are teaching in this space 
aren't really focusing on the management of the real estate aspect. They're kind of just saying, hey, we're going to help you go acquire to, to go buy 500, 1,000 doors, but that's kind of it. And that strategy works just fine in an up market. Say if you're yeah, looking yeah. since maybe a space kind of took off, I think maybe around 2015, 16 or so, people really started joining in. Well, it's kind of been hard to buy a bad deal in that time span up until now, but times are changing. And I think really quality property management and asset management are going to differentiate those who succeed and make a great return from those who kind of break even or kind of lose money in the space. And it's unfortunate. I agree. And what we say, Jake and Gino, is we create multifamily entrepreneurs. I mean, you have to look at, and that's the amazing thing about real, you know, real estate. I think real estate in general, and even multifamily, when you're buying these assets, you're, you're buying an investment. You're getting a tax benefit you're getting appreciation, you're getting a, a rip, dividend, cash flow every month, but you're also able to build a business around it where you can actually scale it up and package it together and sell it. I mean, that's the amazing part. Read the book Built to Sell by John Warlock. That's what you're doing with these assets. When you when you have a regular business, people don't get money for their businesses because they're, they're selling themselves. They're not selling the asset of the business. They're not selling systems and processes. Well, when you're buying a multifamily and you you run it well, and you put it together, and you've got property managers, and you've got cash flow, and you've got the asset running well. You've built that asset to sell. I mean, that's what that's what you're doing as an entrepreneur. And if you're a multifamily, you know, part of the management is to build those systems and those processes in it. And once you're able to do that, you're able to run these properties efficiently. You know, it's not sexy to talk about systems and processes and and KPIs. But that's where you really make a ton of money in the business. Buying the asset is right. We need to buy the asset. Well, once you bought the asset, it's done. Once you finance it, it's done. The only part that's left is that manage right. And that wheel, well, we call it the wheelbarrow, right? To that back legs and the front leg of the wheelbarrow. That wheel is in constant motion, constantly tweaking it, looking, making sure your, your rental rates are where they are, making sure that the expenses are well. And you know, part of that, you don't have to manage it yourself, but you have to understand how to manage the manager. So you mentioned buy right. Sorry, hopefully our audio editor can cut that out. Cat's feeder just went off. It's in my uh, in my office. <laughs> this is a little segment out, but we'll get back to it. So you mentioned buy right. And I think a lot of folks, you know, that maybe pay lip service to that, but don't really dig into it. You know, personally, a big criteria for me is just year built. I don't want a property that's frankly built in the 60s because I've made that mistake before. And they're a lot more expensive to just maintain, have a baseline. When you talk about buy right in your business, how do you think about that? Are you thinking about the physical asset? Are you thinking about just the price that you pay? I mean, price always matters, but how do you think about that? We could spend an hour on this question itself, but I'll I'll give you the the high level. And we've had the evolution on this also because we bought assets in the 60s also, but we bought them at the right price. And we bought them with the idea we we, we know how to fix them and we budgeted properly. So we have to look at the three pillars of real estate. That's the first thing we need to look at. Market cycle is number one, debt is number two, and exit strategy is number three. You're talking about market cycle right now. In 2013, 14, 15, give me those assets every day of the week because prices are suppressed and I can value it. And as the market's going up, you're able to capture that. But right now, that 2000, that you know 1960s asset with cast iron plumbing and old roofs and old driveways at the price point where it's very similar to a B, you need to put a ton of CapEx in. And what is your strategy? Is it to hold it for the next 10, 15, 20 years? That may not be may not be a great idea because you may have CapEx in another five or six years. 
well, if your exchange is to flip out in two years, are you going to be able to flip out in a buyer's market and get your price? You've already paid over pay too high. So you have to understand where you are in the market cycle to understand what kind of assets you should probably be buying right now. Now, if you take a look at what we call the buyer's criteria, most investors, we're, we're at, an, at, a, at an event with syndicators, high-level syndicators. We asked the question, does anybody have a buyer, a buyer criteria? They all looked at us like we're nuts. And you started mentioning what you have. A buyer criteria is basically what kind of assets are you buying right now? First of all, what is the median income of the properties you're buying in the area? What areas are you buying? What's the unit mix that you really like? We like two-bedroom townhomes. If we could find them every day of the week, check the box. We're not going to say no to ones, but if a property has two-bedroom townhomes, home one because they've got great amenities. Hopefully, they have washer dryers in them as well. Right, so you're looking at that aspect of it. Now the year built, we're looking at anything 80s and, and newer because that that asset is is a lot less capex. Where you like to buy and hold for the long term. So the t- asset I was talking to you about off camera, it's a 2000 build. The last Great. five properties we bought, we bought an 83 uh, build, but we paid 63 a door. We redid the entire thing. It was a mom and pop. We bought it in December of last year. Rents were in place, five hundred bucks. They're they're fourteen hundred dollars now. So they absolutely crushed it. But with that property, it was an older asset. But we redid everything. So it's it's practically brand new. It's brick. We did roofs. We did driveways. We turned every single unit, new fixtures, twenty year flooring. So that's an asset that we can hold for the next ten to fifteen years with light terms. So if you're going to buy an older asset in this part of the cycle, make sure you buy it for the right price point and make sure you have enough capex put aside that you can handle it. So we're talking about you know vintage, the year you said. Uh, you were talking about amenities. We're talking about unit mix. We're talking about median income. Figure out what your buy rate criteria is for you right now. And it's going to evolve because if you're a beginning investor, as a beginning investor, you're going to buy anything, anything that makes sense. And that's where people get into trouble because they look at these 60s assets and people who've already re- reflipped them and you know, repositioned them, you're already buying at the high point. Pricing is going to come down right now. And it's also incumbent upon everybody, Taylor, that if you're in a market, every market has different criteria. I mean, something in Knoxville, we can't find three beds in Knoxville. There's very little you know, supply of three beds. When we find them, and game on, we want to buy them. So find out what is really works in your market. You may have a college town where one bed's crushing. You, know, you have a lot of graduate students. You may have a lot of older people. So find out what works in your town. Find out what median income is the sweet spot in your market. And find out also your business plan. What kind of properties you want to service? You want to be in the affordable housing, you know, the C space. You're not going out and buying A properties. You're going to buy properties built in the 70s and 80s. But just make sure when you buy that property, right? There's only two times in real estate that you care about the value of your property. It's when you buy it and when you sell it. The other two times, you could care less as long as you have <laughs> cash flow. So if you're buying it right and holding on to it and making sure you have that long-term fixed rate financing, especially in these next seven years, because back in 08, people got into trouble in multifamily not because of the value of the property. Well, that was it. But their debt came due in a down market and they're upside down and they couldn't refi their property and they lost it. It's not because they were in cash loan. It's because the debt came due and they couldn't refi it because they were underwater. So be careful right now with bridge debt going on. If you've got bridge debt and you're looking at it and you may, you know, you're, you're going to expire in the next 12 to 18 months, there's some risk in there. Or you're thinking about buying a property with bridge debt and it's got a two-year term, possibly to three. Just be careful that you're not taking out too much and you can't re- rehab the property and make sure that you've got a sound exit strategy. Maybe that property you're thinking of flipping, but if you can't flip it and sell it at the price, can you hold on to that property? You kind of briefly touched on markets uh, in there. And I'd like to 
dig into that a little bit, especially for newer investors. You know, I see a lot of people kind of getting started and they are maybe have a somewhat specific idea of the type of asset that they're looking for, like you mentioned, but mm-hmm. their market criteria are, well, I'm looking in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, and Arizona. Mm-hmm. And that is an enormous swath of the country. There's no possible way you could actually understand the markets in those states that you might get some deal flow going into. So what are your thoughts about for newer investors focusing on individual markets as opposed to picking six or seven states to kind of hit up brokers and you know get a little bit of deal flow? Taylor, that, that's a great question. I, I think the question that I often get from new students or people listening is, I need deal flow. Mm-hmm. My first question is, well, what does a deal look like to you? Because a deal that looks like the Jake and Gino is different than a deal that looks like to a beginning investor. So understand, like I said, your buyer criteria. But more importantly, if you're in a market where you think you can do deals in your backyard, I would do that every day of the week. Let's say you're in Cleveland, Ohio. Not a big fan of Cleveland. I think it's a market that's declining. But if it's your backyard, start looking at deals there. Because the only way you're going to do really well in this business is by doing property tours. It's by talking to brokers and letting them know that you're serious, letting them know that you can close, letting them know that you're going to go out property and not waste their time. They don't want to go out for coffee. They've got a tough job. They want to go out and look at properties. They want to go out and do deals. So if you're in a back market that you can do deals in your backyard, I unfortunately started in New York. I was in Westchester County, one of the richest counties in, in the country <laughs> 15 years ago. I wasn't buying deals for cash flow. It was only, you know, and I needed cash flow because I wanted to leave my restaurant job. So what I ended up doing was I ended up uh, flying to Rochester, New York, which is about an hour flight. I could get there in the morning, look at the deals, come back home for dinner. And that's what I ended up doing. I got to be really good and expert in that Rochester market. Bought a couple assets there. Problem was that market was so linear that seven years later, I bought them for 60 grand with two duplex, sold it for 60 grand. Cash flowed a little bit, but I learned a ton about property managing from afar. So it helped me out when I started with Jake. But what I would do is a beginning investor, if you can do your backyard, great. If not, continue to that concentric circle. Move out, move out, move out. Two hours away from your house, three hours away from your house. Because it's always in the beginning, that experience of getting in a car, driving by the property, looking at the property, talking to the brokers. You need to understand that multifamily, it's about relationships and it's about talking to those brokers and getting the deal flow. Now, the smaller properties, you may be able to be a little successful direct seller. These last several years, you have not but now the market's cycling. Actually, brokers are calling you back now. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> you know, there's less calls to offer right now. There's a little bit more motivation from the sellers. So direct to seller may work on these smaller deals. It may come back into vogue. I'm not saying it hasn't, but the odds of people pulling it off over the last few years, it's been a lot less than than I think it will going forward. Understand, pick one market, pick one, one market that you can get to. If you're in California, don't pick, you know, Atlanta. It's going to take you four hours to fly there. You're going through three different time zones. That's why Phoenix is such a hot market. That's why Boise, Idaho is a hot market. That's why Dallas and Austin are hot markets because people from the West Coast can get there. They can invest in those markets pretty comfortably. So get to a market that you can get to relatively easy because if a broker calls you on Monday and says, Taylor, I've got a deal. Can you come by this week? And you're like, you know what? I've got a job. I can't get to this week next week. Well, Gino's going to get to that market, that deal a lot quicker than Taylor. (laughs) Gino's local. So pick a market that you can get to. I mean, that's why a lot of these markets, airports are so huge. Wichita, Kansas is not the same as Kansas City, Kansas, because Wichita is a pain in the ass to get to. There's not a lot of <laughs> there's a lot, a lot of institutional money there, and there's not a lot of demand for that asset. But in Kansas, there's more demand. It's, it's easier to get to. So get to it, you know, relatively easy, and then also learn the market well. Learn what rents are. Learn what expenses are. Learn how to run these assets. Learn, you know, the, you're in Jacksonville. 
Florida. I live about 30 minutes north. If you're looking for a property built in in the 90s, probably not going to find one. You know, you're, they're either really old assets or really new assets. Find out where the emerging markets are in the city. Only way you do that is by picking one or two. If you're going to 15 or 16 different cities, you're not going to be an expert in any of them. You're not going to get any deal flow or any traction in any of them. My, I guess my, the last point I'd make is pick a market that's got at least some deal flow. If you're picking a market with MSA of 40 or 50,000, you may not get a lot of deal flow. So if you're choosing one market when you're starting out with, pick a market that's a little bit bigger that you can get a little more traction that you see has positive job growth and positive population growth going forward. I think that's important as well because a lot of these markets in the Southeast, they've really weathered the storm of COVID and they've come out of it pretty good and people are continuing to move down here. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I moved uh, south uh, eight years ago now, well before COVID, but uh, I fully stand behind my decision to move southward. I think most people, if they move further south, they'd realize that they don't miss winter all that much when they are able to go outside in shorts in the middle of the winter. And plus, you know, great, great living further south, but uh, I could talk about the south all day. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, you know, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show, but you've been on the show before and you've answered those questions. I got three new ones for you, our returning guest. Are you ready to go? Are you ready? Great. First one, what is your favorite book, whether business or personal enjoyment purposes? Difficult to have a favorite book yes. when you've read hundreds. I, you know, the one that I've, I guess I read since I've been on your show last time, I read Stephen Covey's book again, Seven Habits. And, and I love that book because as you get older, you start thinking about the end in mind. You start thinking about what your real goals, what your passions are. It's not just about making money and sharpening the saw. And all of these different habits that you should really be creating. It wasn't a that's a that to me was I read it years and years ago. It didn't resonate as now. You know, the whole stimulus response, the whole paradigm, the way you look at life, it really made me understand during COVID, well, that person's freaking out because he's looking at life that way, and I'm looking at life a little bit differently. So that to me was really profound. I think the other one was, was Atomic Habits by James Clear. I, I just think sometimes when you're trying to teach students why is a person successful and another one isn't successful. And looking at people's habits and looking at people's behaviors is is huge. So those two books, I would say, been the top of my list over the last three or four years. Interesting you say that about uh, Seven Habits. So I haven't actually personally read that, but somebody came on the show recently and recommended it. So I actually put that on my list. Uh, we got on the line this morning at 7 a.m. I woke up at 6, did a little meditation, and I bought Seven Habits. Of this. Uh, so this morning, actually, that's I, weird. I picked Isn't that it up weird? myself. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's on my list now uh, for sure. Atomic Habits, I've heard great things of too. I just haven't made it around to it, but both of those are now officially on Excellent. my list. So we had your uh, favorite book or favorite books, which is great. Definitely uh, appreciate that. Now we move on to number two. What is a tool, piece of software, system, technology, something in your business that you just could not possibly live without? Two things. I'm a boring guy with technology. I like Google. Google Drive, Google Sheets cannot live with 
without them. It simplifies the processes between all the different employees. I can go on all the other stuff. The employees use Asana. They love Monday. They love Slack. Don't use any of that stuff. I like my calendar. And the other thing is we use we use a company called uh, Kajabi. They're our learning management system software. So we have our all our all our training programs on there. We even have one for the property management side where we have training videos for leasing agents for the property for the maintenance tech. So I love Kajabi and I love uh, awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm all about Google myself. I think Microsoft Excel was great for a long time, but now yeah, it's really? kind of fallen by the wayside in a way. And I think Google has a great opportunity to maybe completely displace. If they really focused on it, I think I could yes, it's not it's not there yet, but it's it could happen. Mm-hmm. All right, well, number three, where is a place you're excited to go in 2023? Uh, this year was pretty monumental for us. We went to Hawaii as a family, so I've got six kids. So the eight of us went to Hawaii in July for an event. One of my coaches through the week it was awesome. I just came back from Italy uh, end of August. Went nice. two went a little over two weeks with the whole family. That was pretty amazing. It was a nice pilgrimage that we went. 2023, I, I want to go back to Italy again. I really want to go back and see the rest of the country. I will wear a role for a couple of days. I'd love to go to Florence, possibly go to CC. And that's the trip. It's just, you know, it's 24 hours getting there with eight people. It's not, <laughs> it's not easy, you know, but it's it's well worth it. Now, if you haven't been to Europe and you go as a vacationer, it's just, I mean, Italy's spectacular. They don't, they don't know what the hell they're doing there, but you know what? It's just amazing. It's just, and I can say that because I'm Italian, everybody. So, I'm I'm impressed and I'm just baffled at the same time. That's that's a possibility. You're there. You're just a wonderful stuff. Coliseum has been there for two two thousand years. We can't build a multifamily that lasts a hundred years, but, <laughs> but they've got a structure there that's lasted world wars, earthquakes, people picking at it. It's still sitting there. So it's a, it's just an amazing country. We can get there, man. Try to get there. It's awesome. Absolutely love Italy. I've been there twice. Love to go back several more times. I'm all about uh, traveling to, to Italy in particular is gorgeous and the, the history is is really incredible. Well, Gina, thanks so much for joining us today, for coming back on the show. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, find any of your programs, anything like that, where can they track you down? Just go to jakeandjina.com. Easiest place. You'll have the podcast. We do four weekly shows. We have the bunch of books on there. We have the blogs. jakeandjina.com. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.